At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Hello, hello. I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. I am so excited for you all to meet my guest today. She needs no introduction because she's an idol, an American idol. The winner of American Idol 2004 is Fantasia Barrino. If you don't know her, you had to be sleeping in 2004 when Fantasia Barrino won the third season of American Idol. You see, I'm And with a voice like that, it's no wonder she had the phone lines tied up with people voting for her. Since then, she has become a Grammy-winning R&B artist and a celebrated Broadway actress. At 23 years old, she made her Broadway debut in the musical The Color Purple. She played Celie, a poor Southern woman who triumphs over a life of abuse and finds inner peace. Now, she's reprising her role in the film adaptation of the musical. Fantasia's performance has earned her a Golden Globe nomination, and there have been some loud whispers about an Oscar nod as well. And for good reason. At almost 40, Fantasia has a wizened perspective on life that comes through in each scene and song. But look, I said look, are you looking? We all looking, honey. Look who's Fantasia joined us remotely from Los Angeles to talk about the lessons she's learning from putting on Miss Seeley's pants one more time 15 years later. Miss Fantasia, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you. It is my pleasure. It is my pleasure. To start off, I just got to say, my mom saw you on the Tom Joyner cruise like 15 years ago, yes. singing like 2 a.m., and you did this move that some might say has become your moonwalk, your signature move. You kicked off your shoes, and that blew her mind. Uh, she was like, we were there. She kicked off her shoes, and she was singing. And this is like a memory that has stuck with her forever. So everybody knows that when Fantasia kicks off her shoes, she's about to get into her good singing. <laughs> Listen, that is not even a signature thing for me. Miss Patty LaBelle started that thing off. Mm. You know, now me in church, growing up in church, the shoes coming off was like a thing. Like you take your shoes off, take off your pumps and no thing. It's no problem. But then I'll never forget when I did Idol and people weren't quite voting for me at the time. Mm -hmm. And they were saying like, she's not quite an idol because she's a young mother because she dropped out of Mm. school. And I was hearing those things. So I strategically picked summertime. Because the, the part, hush, little baby, mm-hmm. don't you cry. So hush, little baby, don't you cry. 
I took my shoes off and I sat in the middle of the stage. That was the safest place for me because I knew if I could get grounded and if I could just let them see who I was stripped down from what they're used to seeing, stripped down from what Hollywood is supposed to look like, I needed them to see me. So when I come out my shoes at my show, that's the soul singer in me saying, okay, we about to go to a place where it ain't perfect, it ain't glamorous, it's soul singing, it's real, it's raw. I'm glad that you brought up some of the soul singers that have come before you because I see you kind of as a bridge between generations of R&B singers. At this point, you you kind of the go-to girl for the tributes to legends like Tina Turner and Patti LaBelle whenever somebody needs to evoke the soul-stirring sound of, you know, one of our legends, they turn to you. I mean, you were asked to sing at the homegoing service for the Queen of Soul herself, Miss Aretha Franklin. You know, you have a very churchy sound. It's so beautiful in that way. There's so much of that, like, old school soul approach in your music. But also, I feel like I can see your influence in some of the singers of today, like Coco Jones and Summer Walker. You know, even today, there's TikToks of kids in elementary school. (laughs) And all the kids know all the words to When I See You. I mean, do you see yourself in your catalog as a bridge between those different generations? Being honest, I don't think about that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. People around me may say it, and I'm like, mm, okay, okay. And maybe that's good that I don't, because mm-hmm. it keeps me humble. And knowing that anything that I do, even down to this movie, is all my father helping me through it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, just so that, you know, you don't get too... To into your own image in that way, just so you can keep humble doing what you're doing. Yes. And I wanted to continue to be fun because there was a time in my life when I was still with the record label and everything took over. Like, we got to get the album number one and we got it. And everything was number one. Number, how can we be best this, best that, best this? And it was almost like God had to sit me down and he stripped me away from everything. Okay. And I had to sit down and realize, wait, you're getting caught up on all the things that don't matter. This is not why he allowed doors to open for you. See, when I was a little girl, I started loving music at the age of five. They called me Pearl. That was my name, Pearl. Why? I don't know. But my daddy would say, Pearl, sing a little son, son, something. And nobody had to offer me anything. I just loved to sing. Back then, I remember the street ministry, when people would go out and set up their keyboards and the drums, and they would sing for the homeless and sing for people. And that's what... I got to stay focused on. Because if you get caught up on the other things, it becomes miserable. Hmm. The wind is, like you said, little kids still playing when I see you on TikTok. My favorite basketball team playing it before they get ready to play. <laughs> Women, white, black, young, old, all nationalities saying, I want to thank you 
for sharing this, for sharing that, for this song, for I feel beautiful, for I believe, for free yourself, for, and mm. that is the best number one gift I could have, right? I want to touch on that. Like you said, you touched a lot of people with your story. And they're coming up to you still all the time. Even when you were first back on American Idol 2004, you really stood out to me as a viewer. And I believe you also stood out to the rest of America because you really had such a strong blend of honesty and talent and charisma. I'm feeling it right now. Zion is my little girl. She's two years old. Say hello. Hello. Say watch out there now. That really endeared you to American audiences, especially black audiences. We're always claiming... Miss Tasia May, <laughs> like, ah. you know, but you shared so much personally about your experience as a teen mother and previous struggles with literacy. You've inspired a lot of people and, and you see it this way now, but I wonder, like, did you have a sense at that time that your personal story was always going to be so closely tied to your career? Like, how did that feel to be 19 years old with that kind of attention on, you know, all these aspects of your private life? No, I didn't. I didn't. Here's the thing: you gotta understand. I'm, I was. I'm from High Point, North Carolina. This was my first time being in front of cameras. I've always been honest. You ask me a question, I answer. <laughs> and my grandmother used to always say, "Your testimony is something that you share. You go through a test for a testimony because your testimony will help somebody else." And so I didn't see it as a thing or a problem at first. The people from Idol who really did want to see me win will pull me to the side and say, you know, maybe you shouldn't talk about this as much, or maybe we should change the narrative about da 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 because they wanted to see me go far. Hmm. It was mainly me talking about being a young mother, talking about my daughter, um, talking about my school situation, me dropping out in ninth grade. You know, the word idol, I guess they want you to be perfection. If a preacher is up teaching, He can't touch a lot of people if he hasn't experienced some of those things that he's teaching about. So for me, it's like, well, how can I bless people without sharing my story? That is a part of who I am. That is a part of my soul singing. You ask why I do certain things with my vocal, why I do certain things with songs, why I do certain things on my live show. That is because of what I've been through. Hmm. I mean, and that's the thing people are responding to. Soon after you won American Idol, you released a memoir called Life is Not a Fairy Tale, which was then turned into a Lifetime movie that you also started with Viola Davis playing your mother, a classic, a Lifetime classic. You know, playing yourself in your biopic and playing Celie in The Color Purple are your only film acting roles. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. First of all, that's incredible. <laughs> okay. That's incredible. But, you know, I know playing yourself and playing Seely are quite different experiences, but is there anything that you learned from the experience of playing you that helped you when you stepped onto the film set for The Color Purple? Oh, um, no, The Color Purple is totally different. <laughs> like, playing me, I'm just going back into things that happened to me. Mm. That wasn't so hard for me. Seely, that was different. Totally different. I'm stepping into someone else's life, allowing my body to be a vessel for her to live through me. And the things that she went through and endured were heavy. And it also tapped a little bit into my childhood, which was heavier. Mm -hmm. 
you know? Mm. Um, and I didn't like it at first, especially on Broadway. The first time you played Celie was in the Color Purple musical on Broadway, and you first took that role at 23, tender age of 23. Yeah. And you recently described that job to the New York Times as a punishing experience. I mean, you said in multiple interviews lately that you really hated playing that role on Broadway. It was like you couldn't separate your own traumas from Celie's traumas. Talk to me more about that, because I mean, even like the the press at the time also drew similarities between your life and Celie's life, you know, both black Southern girls from, you know, not the biggest towns. And, you know, you both survived sexual assault and had children at a young age. Like, how has it felt to be compared to Celie then and now as you're playing this role? Back then, I hated it. Back then, I couldn't stand it. I felt it was, you know, I was like, are y'all trying to call me ugly? Are you saying that I'm da 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 I hated it. But now... It's different. I'm I'm grown. I'm a grown woman. I'm so next year I'll be but this year, Jesus, I'll be forty. But I'm 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 excited for forty. Um, because I'm sitting in the pocket and it's a very sweet spot. I'm married, I'm running my own business. I'm back in college at Central State where they gave me classes for business. I just got my Somalia certificate for wine and I have my own wine coming out. I'm sitting in a sweet spot. Hmm. So now my relationship with Celia is totally different. When I see her on billboards, oh my God, I'm I'm about to tear up, but that's okay. When I see mm-hmm. her on billboards, I get so excited. Look at her. Mm. Look at how beautiful she is. Look at all the she went through. But 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 she stood the test of time and she made it out. Pure as gold. She's a class act. She's elegant. Oh, my God. She's the the definition of forgiveness. So I'm walking in a sweet spot, and I'm going to represent her so well. I'm so glad I did not run from it this time. I see her in a different light this time. I don't say it like, yo, Celie is really the ish. Like, she's really that girl. And so now I'm like, yes, I want to interview about her. Yes, I want to talk about her. I loved every piece of clothing that she wore. I loved how she wrapped her hair. I loved her posture in this time around. Like, I love everything about Celie. Mm. I read that Celie's hair, which, like, I was talking to our producer, Corey Antonio. We were preparing to talk to you. And I was talking about the plaits, the braids that we see Whoopi Goldberg as Celie wear in the original movie. Those have become iconic. Yeah. I got braids in right now. I know when I take them out in a few weeks, the first thing I do when I take out my braids, I put in my little Sealy plaits. And that's what I call them. I call them my Sealy plaits. And I was reading when you were first in the Broadway version, you didn't want to wear your hair like that in just the simple braids. But this time you felt differently about it. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, and I know it's a character, but her hair, the wigs that they gave Sealy. It, it, all you guys saw was the braids, but when they took it loose, it was just so beautiful and full and so natural. And I would beg them, like, please let Celie just wake up one morning and let them see her beautiful glory. Mm. Take the braids out, let them see it. And they would laugh about it and be like, ah, oh, they want it braided. But I loved everything about her. Hmm. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because you've also talked about how 
taxing it was to shoot this film. You know, you said on oh, some yeah. days you leave the set in tears. What was bringing oh, yeah. you to tears when playing Seely this time? It's blood work. We're, we're tapping back into our ancestors. We also were on land that still has slave homes. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're tapping and feeling things that you guys can't see while you're watching the movie, but we're on, on the sets mm. and we feel it. We will have side conversations. The theater that, that me and Taraji was in when she took Celie to the movie, when she would take Celie, that theater said so much. She looked at me and was like, if only these walls could speak. Coming up, the full circle moment that brought Fantasia to tears at the Color Purple premiere. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. There's a lot of stuff to watch out there. Pop Culture Happy Hour, a four-day-a-week, 20-minute-a-day podcast, helps you pick out what's worthy of your next big binge. Whether it's a new show, a buzzy book, or a movie that we can't stop talking about, Pop Culture Happy Hour is here with a recommendation you'll want to snuggle up with, guaranteed. Listen to Pop Culture Happy Hour every day, only from NPR. We know you care about what you watch, what you read, and what you listen to. NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast is with you four days a week to make sure that time is well spent. The latest, greatest shows, books, music, and movies, it's all on the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Listen tonight. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. When the movie closes, it really hits home how many types of love it took to get Seely to a place of self-discovery and healing, love between sisters, children, friends. But another type of love is the love between Suge and Seely, which in the book is, you know, sexual and romantic in addition to the friendship that they have. And, you know, some people feel like there was way too much romance in the film. Some people feel like there wasn't enough romance in the film. But I'm curious, how do you think of their love? You know, I look at it like this. It wasn't that Celie was like, I'm just, I want to be into a woman. It was the fact that a woman was the first person to come through and show her love. I believe it was, if it was a male or female, she would have been smitten over it because she had never experienced it before. Hmm. Uh, Shook comes in and she's bringing a lot of things into my world that feel brand new and fresh and free and kind. And Celia had never experienced that. What about tears when I'm happy? What about So of course she's going to fall in love. Of course she's going to want her to be close. Not because she's a woman, but because she was the first person to come in and show her. Hmm. And I think that we're living in a time now where love is all different types of colors, 
it comes in many forms in many ways. And with Alice Walker's book, this is how it came for Seal. Hmm. 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 It's so interesting. I mean, the way you describe that, that is something that even now I, as a grown woman, very much understand. Um, I have been with my husband for eight and a half years and I had like boyfriends and dated people before then, but it was very different to have, and, I, and, I, and which is not to say that I didn't have love from friends and family and all of that, but in that, but to have somebody really look at me, you know, like top to tail, like head, head to feet. And yeah. the whole of me and be like, oh, yeah, this is great. <laughs> I love this. It's you don't want to let that go. You don't want to like, let it go. Yes. It's an yes. all-encompassing experience. It's an all-encompassing experience. Yeah. You know, my producer, Corey Antonio, is home for the holidays. And when your name was brought up, because everybody's talking about you now because of the movie, somebody said, our girl has grown up. And... I think that there is this sense, especially among that age group of Black Americans who came to know you through your time on American Idol, of like deep pride in you. And, you know, not just everything you've accomplished, but everything you've fought through over these years. You really feel like, you know, the girl next door all grown up for a lot of people. And I'm wondering, do you feel that? Yeah. I've grown up and I've had some angels that God has placed in my life to help me get there. I would never forget a premiere in Charlotte, North Carolina. To go back home and sit and watch it with my hometown folks and to walk in the movie theater. I had my son to the left of me and my daughter to the right. He's 22 now. My son is 12. But my daughter, Zion, there was a time when Things got rocky and she was like, I just wanted you here. And I was like thinking, well, I was trying to pave the way and build a legacy and make sure she had everything I didn't have. And I was young trying to figure this thing called motherhood out. And so I, when she said that to me, it broke my heart. I'm thinking, dang, hey, I failed. I was trying to do all this for her. Da, 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 da. Long story short, she looks at me in the theater and she says, mommy. And I said, yes, baby. She says, she was like, I get it. Thank you. I'm not mad at you, mommy. Everything you did, you were doing for us. Thank you. And that was, I guess, something through Seely. Allow her to see it. And that was all I ever wanted to hear. Girl, I just bawled in the theater. Me and her just hugged each other and we just cried. And I just kept saying, thank you, Lord. That's all I wanted to hear was her say, job well done, mommy, because I wanted something different for her. I wasn't going to be the young mom to have somebody else all raising her and I'm in and out of the clubs. And I know I was there with her. She was with me in the trenches. And for her to say that, I felt like, go ahead, Tasia. Girl, you did that. (laughs) You did that. You didn't give up. You didn't give in. You fail a lot of times along the way. You've got a lot of scars and a lot of marks. But you got up and you didn't let that stop you. And I feel like I'm just climbing this beautiful mountain. And I'm going at a pace that is very slow so that I can enjoy it and experience it. My story will never change. I will always tell everybody, it's me and God. Yeah. Hmm. 
that is, I mean, that is a that is a major moment. That is a major milestone moment. Similar to how you get to the end of the film and you see Seely kind of surveying, you know, her life, her friends, her family, her children. You have a similar sound right now, and that's very feels very fitting. It feels very fitting. Yeah. Miss Fantasia, I have really enjoyed speaking with you today. It has just been fantastic to talk to you. And I wish you luck. I wish you luck this season. Thank you. You know, I enjoy talking to you too. I just pray nothing but blessings and prosperity into your life. And I wish nothing but the absolute best for you, your marriage, and everything, every door you're about to walk through in this season. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, Fantasia prayed on me. I'm never going to fail. Oh no. I'm never going to fail. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> that was Fantasia Barino Taylor, star of The Color Purple. Coming up, a gaze into our crystal ball to look at 2024 in fashion. It can be hard nowadays to find a space where we're able to listen to each other, where we can agree to disagree. It's why I'm proud of 1A, a show that's made for you and by you. We're not about snark. We're about dialogue. Join the discussion and me, your host, Jen White, by listening to the 1A podcast from WAMU and NPR. The world of podcasts can feel overwhelming. We'll let you in on the easiest way to find your next favorite show. Head to npr.org slash podcast. From politics to pop culture to music and everything in between, you'll find a selection of shows that'll make you a super fan in no time. Here and now. It can be a mantra if you need one. And who doesn't these days? We're a show that gives you fresh perspectives on the biggest stories of the day with real people, all in a half hour. Get your world news all in one place. Just remember the mantra, here and now, anytime. A podcast from NPR and WBUR. When Argentina won the World Cup, it meant so much to so many people. But there's one person in particular for whom it meant everything. Soccer legend Lionel Messi. In The Last Cup, a bilingual podcast series, I explore why. Listen now to The Last Cup podcast from NPR and Futuro Studios. I've said this before, but I believe there are two things you can look at if you want to understand the world around you. Food and fashion. And to my next guest, 2023's endless cycle of online fashion trends like ballet core, quiet luxury, eclectic grandpa, are a huge indicator of what's to come this year. Personal style. If you're thinking about what you like, you can participate in trends or moments in fashion or culture without necessarily feeling like you're just on this constant treadmill of like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? That is Rachel Tashian, fashion writer at The Washington Post. She's watched trends come and go from designers to celebrities to influencers. And while personal style is trending, it isn't cultivated through keywords and hashtags. It's a journey. I think what may have happened as a result of that treatment of style and fashion as an activity or a subculture or something that you participate in, it's divorced clothing from real life in a lot of ways. Today on the show, Rachel and I discuss what this year in personal style could mean for our closets, our economy, and our political anxieties. Rachel, 
Welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I like to hear that. Okay. Okay. To look back for a second, 2023 style, in one word, what do you think? Chaos. Chaos. Okay, okay, okay. Why chaos? Why chaos? I think we sort of came to a point of exhaustion with this hyper trend cycle that started during the pandemic. Like Mm -hmm. everything is a trend. There's a new trend every week. I think when we all had a lot more downtime, when we were all working from home, seemed like a form of entertainment. And now there's like too much content. There are too many trends. So I think people became really exhausted with that whole chasing the highs of these cycles. After last year's chaos, what do you think is in store for us in 2024 when it comes to fashion? Well, we saw this really interesting conversation bubbling up, talking about the development of personal style. It's everywhere. Yes, yes. I mean, it's funny because- It's everywhere. You don't want to say it's a trend because it's it's positioning itself as anti-trend, right? Mm -hmm. But in a way, that has become sort of the dominating conversation in fashion. Yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. Every time I open up any- any social media app, I feel like I'm being inundated constantly, constantly with personal style content. You really got to get to the point where if you go buy something, the thought is never about anybody else but you. Style is just an influence in a nebulous algorithm of likes and dislikes caused by our interactions with past experiences, upbringing, books, movies, art. Creating an iconic and consistent personal style is all about repeating items. So you want things in your closet that you are going to want to wear year after year. But I want to know from you, you're somebody who, for your job, you think a lot about personal style. How would you define personal style? I would say that personal style is at the intersection of two things. Comfort and confidence. I think that's when you can feel the most relaxed in your clothes, but also excited about what you're wearing. One of the things that's been interesting to me in watching this whole conversation about personal style is that because it's become such a conversation, I worry, and I think other people worry about this too, other fashion writers and and observers, it's like, it's intimidating, right? Like, oh my gosh, now I have to like do this, go on this whole journey to figure out who I am and then buy a bunch yeah. of clothes to reflect that. But I think about personal style as something like cheese, right? Like sometimes the block of classic orange cheddar is like really great on your cheese and nut display. But then there's yeah. also the option to like, I'm going to go to the specialty grocery store and I'm going to hunt out the sheep's milk cheese that was made Mm -hmm. in a cave by monks and was aged 18 (laughs) months or something. Like, you don't have to do the French monk version of personal style. I think there are definitely people for whom style is like a pursuit and a lifestyle, Mm -hmm. but there are people who are just happy with a simpler crudité option. Mm -hmm. Also, I could see like, even in one's own life, it's like some days you're going to have a craft singles day. Yeah. And some days you're going to be like that Irish cloth bound cheddar or something like that. That makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of this TikTok that I saw recently. They were talking about how one of the trend archetypes that passed through this past year was eclectic grandpa. 
And this person noted that in order to be an eclectic grandpa, you're already getting at two things just in the title. One, age, it takes time. It took time for this eclectic grandpa to develop his style, but also eclectic. It took experience and trying things out and traveling or meeting people or just, you know, enjoying your life to figure out what you like. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they have great personal style is because they are living really interesting lives. You know, I think someone, for example, who has like amazing personal style is the writer Hilton Alls. And you only ever see Hilton wearing this one coat with this enormous brown fur collar. And it's the simplest coat, but it says so much about who this person is and the kinds of reading that he's done and the kinds of gossiping that he does and like how he wants to appear to the world. I mean, you can, just from this one coat, it says so much more than a, a whole wardrobe that, you know, someone else might have. And I think the reason why that coat conveys so much is because Hilton is such a fascinating person who's so well-read and has seen like every movie in the world and has this like encyclopedic knowledge of film costume and and also a visual art. If you want to be an eclectic grandpa, as you were saying, you have to live an eclectic life. Mm, mm. But I wonder like beyond the chaos of 2023, are there other reasons people are moving towards personal style in this moment? I think another big piece of this that's important not to discount is the kind of rebellion or this against or the skepticism of fast fashion. Hmm. And that this is a really great answer to the ethical ambivalence that we're feeling about shopping and fast fashion. I wrote a piece several Mm -hmm. years ago called The Most Sustainable Idea in Fashion is Personal Style. And that has had like better legs than anything I've ever written. And I've seen it come (laughs) up again and again. And this idea that if you really want to shop sustainably, you have to think about what you like, what your tastes are, what looks good on you. Well, I still want to wear this in 20 years. Like, is this something of a quality that's going to last? Okay. So as we said at the top of this episode, influencers and I don't use this word as a pejorative, are really pushing the idea of personal style. And yet I see some of the same people who are all about personal style do branded content with more like big box retailers. Or I see influencers call what they're doing, quote unquote, personal style, but what they're wearing is actually just very on trend. And I have doubts they'll be wearing those pieces, you know, five or 10 years from now. So it makes me wonder, is personal style, style just being used as a marketing tool? I mean, it's funny to think about authentic branded content. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, you know, if the way that you make your living is to strategize around telling brands that what you have to say is relevant to what they need, then I can understand why that would happen, I guess. (laughs) Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is like anything that is trendy, an influencer is going to talk about in some kind of brand partnership. It reminds me of a conversation that our producer, Corey Antonio, had with fashion critic and content creator, Ryan Finn. And she said, we are completely divorced from authentic subcultural fashion, like in this moment. People can kind of like use keywords that they learned from social media to kind of like put together a punk look or put together a fairy look or what have you. You don't necessarily have to 
be in the world or be of that subculture. And that kind of seems to be feeding these cycles of micro trends that we've all seen the past few years. Well, you have to wonder if what's replaced authentic subcultures is fashion itself as a kind of subculture where (laughs) people are thinking almost like fashion designers or stylists, like that kind of cycling through of different kind of personalities or different style archetypes. That's how a fashion designer thinks, right? Like Eddie Slimane or Muccia Prada or Jonathan Anderson, they're thinking like, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of this 1980s sort of corporate suiting and I'm going to mix that with this very 1950s conservative thing. And it is about kind of creating and accessing those archetypes. And and I think what may have happened as a result of, of that sort of treatment of style and fashion as an activity or a subculture or something that you hmm. participate in, it's divorced clothing from real life in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting answer. That fashion is the subculture. But to stay on this idea of subculture versus mainstream culture— When I was younger, I felt like there was like some harmony or consistency between kind of like celebrities, magazines, and what we saw on the street. Like Juicy Couture suits. Everyone had Juicy Couture suit. Like it was a good time. I had one. There were really good knockoffs that people used to get. There were certain types of styles that seemed to kind of permeate every level of the culture. But sometimes I just don't feel like that exists anymore. Like sometimes I feel like there's this disconnect between celebrities and their stylists sort of aiming for these editorial looks or extremely kind of safe old Hollywood glamour kind of looks. And then there's influencers. Some might be dressing to fit a certain archetype or maybe also like getting a lot of hauls or a lot of free clothing from various brands and they're trying to incorporate that into their wardrobe. And then you have like your everyday consumer. Like to me, I feel like all of these groups are kind of a little bit out of sync right now. I feel like we're living in a moment of fractured aesthetics. Are you seeing that too? And if we are, where does that road take us? Yes, it was this moment where like there was this clear chain of influence. I think Mm -hmm. there actually is a chain of influence now and that it's fractured what used to be. And Mm. so what is happening now is that the runway isn't really creating trends anymore. Hmm. I think that there's one designer who still creates trends, and that is Mucia Prada. We've seen the mini skirt. We've seen, you know, the exposed abdomens. That's true. She's actually created things that have trickled down to all different parts of culture. But that sort of cerulean belt in the Devil Wears Prada Right. That was chosen for you by the people in this room. That's not how it works anymore. I think that celebrity stylists are the ones who hold the power to create real trends. I mean, I Mm. don't think that a fashion designer has created a trend on the scale of like Beyonce and the sequin cowboy hats. Or think about the sequin bodysuit that she was wearing with the hands, which was made by Jonathan Anderson for Loewe and debuted on the runway, I believe, a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And it had a sort of cult following in fashion, but it wasn't until... Beyonce wore it for the Renaissance tour, that it became this incredible phenomenon. You know, even though we've been talking about personal style, there have been a lot of fashion forecasts of, you know, what might be trending this year. And people are predicting that we're going to see a lot of conservative fashion. 
Chanel tweed suits, long slim skirts. You talked about Prada's 2024 spring collection and I looked at it and there's like no skin to see, which isn't always a Prada thing. Color of the year, according to Pantone, is peach fuzz, which is basically like the like the white person crayon color, which I'll say, actually, I look really good in, um, in peach fuzz. But still, it's a very neutral color. It can be a very neutral color. I wonder, what, what about society do you think is pushing us toward these safe looks? I think it's a desire for a sense of stability. Hmm. You know, I think whenever people are looking backwards in fashion or in entertainment and popular culture, it's a sense that something then was better that we've Hmm. lost now. And how do we regain that? But I think there are also these like parallels that people are feeling and that sense of conservatism mixed with paranoia. I mean, that feels very sort of familiar and accessible at this moment. You know, to that point, I feel like in 2023, we saw a lot of culture-driven fashion from like Renaissance silver to Barbie pink. But as we've mentioned, people are going to be likely looking for higher quality pieces that might last a little bit longer. But, you know, in 2024... Do you see the quest for personal style being a quest that is clothing-driven or culture-driven? I certainly hope that it's culture-driven because I always feel that my outfits are better when I'm seeing more movies, when I'm Mm. reading as much as I want to, when I'm going to a lot of museums and gallery shows, when I'm spending a lot of time with my friends. Like, my outfits are better. It's the way that people talk about drinking water. Like, it's beauty starts from within. (laughs) Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. This was so great. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. That was fashion writer Rachel Tashian. You can find her work at The Washington Post. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. My name is Simone, and I have a question for you. So I don't know much about this, but I've been hearing a lot about chaos surrounding this Stanley Cup. What is it? Like, what's the deal? Why are people so obsessed with it? Tell me more, Brittany. I need answers. Thank you. Simone, thank you so much for calling in with this question. This has been on my mind. So first of all, I am from the Detroit area, which is also known as Hockey Town, colloquially. And I own a Brandon Shanahan jersey from the Red Wings. I also have a photo of myself wearing a Shanahan jersey with the Stanley Cup. So when I think about the Stanley Cup, even as a non-sports girl, that's where my mind goes initially. Now, to complicate that a little bit, I also am a Stanley Cup owner. I didn't know that I was a Stanley Cup owner really for a while because my husband just randomly bought me one at Target, like four or five years ago because it was pink and I like pink. And he was like, oh, she'll like this. This is cute. And it actually kept my water cold for a long time. And that worked for me. Cut to Christmas 2023. Oh my gosh. The girls are going wild. Everybody is like fighting each other. I'm seeing a lot of people who don't just like want one cup or maybe like a second one for the car or something like that. 
I'm seeing people with every single shade of the rainbow and beyond of Stanley Cup. Stanley Cup walls in their homes. They're making accessories for the Stanley Cup. I also think that this is really indicative of where our culture is at right now. We're in a place right now where it's like, we can't just have like one good product and be like, you know what? I'm going to buy this because I like to drink a lot of beverages. And this is a cute little cup that's going to hold my little beverages. It's like there has to be some sort of mini boomlet and like adjacent businesses. There's got to be all of these side hustles where people are trying to do their Amazon storefront to sell you Stanley Cup accessories. Let's stop. Let's just stop. I don't know if y'all remember, but my mother at some point won, I think, a raffle for a Princess Diana Beanie Baby, okay, back in like 1998 or something like that. People were selling Princess Diana Beanie Babies for like thousands of dollars because they were so rare. I just think of some of these people with these Stanley Cup balls and I'm like, sister, come 2026, how are we going to feel about that? What are you going to do with all them cups? you going to sell them to. So I don't know. Let's just think about it. Like, I think it's nice to have a little something that you like and that your friends like, and we all want to feel like we belong. But I don't know. I just feel like now is a good time to remember the Beanie Baby situation of the late 90s and like, try not to repeat history. Maybe let's take a chill pill. So that's just my two cents. Simone, thank you so much. I appreciate you asking me about this and I hope that you enjoy some beverages this weekend and whatever cup you choose. If you have a thought or question about pop culture, send us a voice memo at ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain. Corey Antonio Rose. This episode was edited by Jessica Plachek. Bilal Qureshi. Engineering support came from Robert Rodriguez. Maggie Luthar. Ko Takasugi Chernobin. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR is with you four days a week to talk about what we're watching, listening to, or just trying to figure out. What you might check out this weekend, what you checked out last weekend, it's all fair game for good conversation. For pop culture and high spirits, listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today.